0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of
1: listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Language. Today, I'm talking to Joshua Miller of the University of Michigan about his book, Accented America, Cultural Politics of Multilingual Modernism. The book explores the influence of multilingualism on the American literary scene in the first half of the 20th century and in particular, how awareness of languages and their cultural roles influenced the output of a generation of influential writers. In this interview, we discussed the debates on the American national language that involved politicians, pundits, and the first generation of monolinguistic scholars, before examining how writers such as Gertrude Stein, John Dos Passos, and Nella Larson were influenced by their language backgrounds to challenge the prevailing relations between speech and social identity. I'm talking to Joshua Miller about his book, Accented America, The Cultural Politics of Multilingual Modernism, in which he documents the influence of multilingualism on the development of modernist writing in the USA in the first half of the 20th century. Josh, how did this book come into being? This book actually wasn't the book I
0: initially thought I was going to be writing. Um, I had a completely different topic in mind initially, and uh, as I worked um, on my dissertation, which did in fact end up becoming Accent in America, um, I more or less tripped over um, H.L. Mencken's um, book, The American Language, in the library, and it immediately sparked a number of questions for me that were... um, that were just incredibly interesting why it was published in 1919 uh, just after world war one which I knew to be a time of intense anti-german activity um, in the US why um, I had never known this book existed even though I'd read Mencken many times Um, why one of the most prominent critics of literature who was himself of German background would have written a book on US English um, also at that time Um, I had always associated his writing with a kind of uh, sharp polemicism, as well as um, satire verging on irony. And so I kind of wondered: uh, is this is this book a joke? Is he serious in it? Um, how how seriously should we be taking it? And it it just kind of spiraled into a series of research questions. And um, the more that I read, the more that I. Um, just kind of got hooked. And so I ended up leaving behind the initial project that I thought I was going to write. It led me back to a topic that I had had written my master's thesis on, but had really hadn't thought about since, which is um, why would authors um, choose to do something so seemingly counterintuitive for a writer who wants an audience, which is to write in, in mixed forms of languages. Why write in languages which um, are likely to limit the number of readers that one can speak to? And it struck me as so odd to begin with that there would be writers writing in this in this sort of way and, and writing at the same time as Mencken's um, various editions of the American language. Um, and I just, at that point, I was just kind of off and running. And uh, the next thing I know, it's, it's today.
1: You uh, mentioned how widespread this kind of language mixing is among uh, writers of the period you're talking about. Um, in fact, you suggested the list of writers who don't do so might prove to be shorter than the ones who do. Is that something that reflects particularly a current in, uh, in literature and what that ought to constitute at the time, or is it uh, primarily, do you feel, due to the circumstances of the writers who are in a lot of cases emerging from multilingual backgrounds themselves?
0: Yeah, that's one of those questions. I thought about that question a great deal as I got started because I was trying to figure out what was ordinary, despite the fact that it seemed exceptional, Um, but what was more or less um, something that in looking at modernism and looking at U.S. literature from various time periods would um, turn out to be actually not so surprising and which were the features that were most striking and most um, of this moment. And what I discovered, again, to my great surprise, is um, I knew the U.S. had always been a multilingual nation. I knew that there had never been a national language instituted um, and still hasn't been. Um, I knew, um, kind of broadly speaking, that writers experimented with mixed languages at various times and places. But what I was most surprised by, I think, um, in the process of researching the book, is um, the fact that it it often was not books written by individuals who themselves had necessarily emigrated or were immigrants. Um, sometimes they were, and sometimes they were children of immigrants. Um, but often also there was a longer uh historical period within which um, modernist writers in particular in the first half of the 20th century were interested in seeing demographic and social and political changes take place in the language of the time, which is to say that they were, uh, seeing english as as an inherently interlingual language um, as a result of of broader social and historical patterns and movements, some of which were very recent to the time that they were writing many of which started long before. And so, uh, for example, African-American writers were writing about um, language issues from the perspective of um, of language trends that had happened um, generations, if not hundreds of years earlier, um, while writers like Gertrude Stein and John Dos Passos were writing in these very indirect ways, not in a kind of way that represented their own personal experience, but in these very indirect, obscure and abstract language mixtures. Um, so what I discovered is that while many writers do write in response to their own experiences of language change in the moment, individually as well as socially, um, many authors are kind of tapping into this much deeper historical, transtemporal current that seems to be taking place more broadly. And where that led me to is to recognize a fairly consistent, ongoing legacy in, in U.S. literary cultures and also political ones, which is um, a kind of repeated effort to prioritize um, a particular form of English in the U.S. to keep reasserting the primacy of, of U.S. English. A process which um, continues again to the to this very day, um, long into the 21st century, um, and and writers who are Picking up on various forms of of kind of ongoing um, multilingual experimentation, multilingual um, neologisms, and and other kinds of, of language play, what that suggested to me is that these many of these novels were not about a historical moment of immigration transition. These are not um, novels of a fading transitional ephemeral kind of mixed language speech. In many cases, these novels feel to me to be um, attempting to, whether they do or not is, is kind of a different question, but attempting to understand the significance of durable, ongoing, um, really long-lasting non-English-speaking communities in the U.S. and language-mixing communities in the U.S., um, to the extent that um, that the U.S.'s linguistic demographics, you know, would kind of um, demonstrate um, not so much um, multilingualism as a feature, as a disappearing feature or transitional one, um, but as an ongoing phenomenon.
1: And although you emphasize that these communities have been around for many cases for many generations in the U.S., you take as your starting point chronologically 1898, uh, the wars of 1898 having initiated the expansion of the U.S of influence into the Caribbean, Latin America, and the Pacific region. Do you see that as triggering a sort of step change in the way issues about language are being negotiated? Absolutely. And um, there
0: are laws in the early 1900s, around 1906, and 1907, that are the first laws that in U.S. history, um, first federal laws in U.S., um, history that identify language as a certain kind of litmus test for naturalization or citizenship and the first um, language laws per se in state history in in US history um, occurred at the state level in the early 1920s and um, it's it seems very clear to me from the um, citizenship policies from the emergence of Americanization campaigns and both governmental and industrial Um, education projects that took language as a form or method of teaching citizenship, um, that something very distinctive takes place um, as a result of the cross currents of immigration into the nation and and imperial expansion outward. And so there are distinctive features that emerge during the the period, uh, I would say, something like the half century, really, uh, following the 1890s, um, in which... um, what had been and what was and what what continue to be ongoing um, features have a distinct charge. And it's it's entirely it would make entirely good sense to me to suggest that those are um, ongoing ones, they don't really seem to dissipate. They kind of get renewed over time. But um, the particular features of the 1890s in particular, during the, the moments when the U.S. is being described as a transnational nation, as um, a nation that is in many ways an international one, um, the language really comes to the fore in ways it never had previously.
1: When you turn in the first chapter to talk about uh, Mencken's American language in uh, in more detail, a facet of this that you emphasise is the way in which he himself is uh, is trying to, if you will, fit in with this with this new thinking about language, or at least to uh, try and associate himself with some kind of emerging idea of would it be fair to say harmonisation?
0: I would, yeah. Mencken is such an extraordinarily complex person to write about. I left writing that chapter feeling as though I, I kind of wouldn't wish him on my worst enemy, because he is extraordinarily deft and and clumsy somehow at the same time. And his um, his capacity for um, for what I was kind of referring to when I was thinking about him as as both a polemicist but also as as an ironist at the same time is it, it really is genuinely quite hard to tell. Um, when he's being serious, and, and how serious he's being. Um, so the, the problem that emerged, the question that came to me initially was, um, why would this critic write the book, The American Language, in a, in a way for it to come out in 1919? And what I what I learned, I'd, I'd sort of heard about this, but I hadn't quite realized its relevance. Um, is that during World War One, he experienced the only period of political censorship, the only period in which he was he was silenced by his his newspaper for his his quite vitriolic statements on behalf of Germany during World War I, which naturally did not go over well with his readers after having risen in stature in the 19 teens while editing the smart set and um, and publishing more and more um, across the country he he clearly um, kind of lost his reputation during that moment and um, as a as a Um, a person with German background and as um, somebody who was identified with the nativist fervor during World War I in opposition to Germany, um, there was just a tremendous shift in orientation toward German, which had been the the second language of the country um, and which um, very rapidly declined in terms of publications in German in the U.S., as well as German language speakers. So my argument is that in part, he wrote the American language as a renovation project of his reputation in not quite so cynically as I guess that sounds, but um, with an eye toward refashioning himself and irony um, appears much in much greater force um, after World War One than it did beforehand in his writings, which were often caustic, but not always as as sarcastic and um, not only with with such serious or sort of explicit irony. Um, and that seems to me to have given him a certain kind of safety as a critic. He was able to say some of the same critical things, um, but he could fall back on his reputation as an ironist. He could fall back on, you know, not having always to be taken seriously for every word that he said. What was fascinating is that he does, in fact, turn into turn to this project studying the American language um, it is a harmonizing project in a certain sense, um, in that he sees it as a mongrel language for a mongrel nation. And he means that both in the positive sense and in the pejorative and perhaps even racist senses, um, or racialist senses. Um, and, uh, for a critic who, uh, described his essays under the rubric of prejudices, um, this is not someone who is afraid to explore and exploit his own. And so, um, he initially argues in the first version of, of the American language, the, um, at the time, very counterintuitive, contrarian argument that uh, U.S. English is a national language, that it is not simply an outgrowth, a kind of poor cousin of British English. But linguistically, it's its own language and has its own uh, forms and structures and features, histories, um, meanings, etc. And over the course of editing and revising it, it's the only project he continued working on throughout his life. He only finished it. um, He only stopped working on it. Uh, near the very end of his life, um, at which point he also had a stroke and stopped writing, period. He continued to revise it such that for the fourth edition, he, in the 19, late 1930s, he came to the argument to suggest not that, uh, U.S. English and British English were two streams, but uh, two sort of equal, equal streams of language, um, of equal um, kind of power and relevance. Um, but by that point, he argues that U.S. English has overtaken British English, and um, it is, you know, well on its way to becoming um, not only the dominant form of English in the world, but perhaps the dominant language in the world. And um, the grandiloquence and sort of intensity of his arguments uh, tends to increase over time um, with, with each edition.
1: The impression I got from reading your description of the work is that it, in some sense, almost got away from him. It, it gained its own momentum and came to define him in a way which I guess he didn't expect at the in, uh, initiation of the project.
0: I think so. I think he I really think he began it on a lark. I think he He had written essays, he'd written columns um, on on language issues uh, during the 19 teens before World War One. Um, so it was clearly one of these projects that he had in mind. Um, I think he started off imagining it or envisioning it as a an exercise in contrarian politics as a way of um kind of undermining and and opening up um the relationship of of questions of of really what is US national culture in this in this very fraught and complex moment of of the late nineteen teens. And he used his enforced silence, the fact that he couldn't publish during uh the later parts of the of World War One um to to do his research and to and to finish up you know, to expand this project and turn it to something larger. But my sense is two things happened. The first thing is um, he kind of um, couldn't stop writing it. I think he simply got obsessed and um, claims each edition. uh, The first three editions came out in rapid fire succession, 1919, 1921 and 1923. He sounds in each edition as though he hopes that it will be the last one he has to work on. And he sounds more and more exhausted, um, as he continues to work on it because he, um, because the second thing that happened is it produced an overwhelming response. He got, he received a massive amount of mail. Um, he received a tremendous number of suggestions and additions and, um, corrections from readers. Um, he ended up um, forming conversations and relationships with professional linguists in the 1920s, um, which just so happened to be also uh, the moment within which the academic discipline of linguistics in the U.S. Um, and linguistics as as a science emerged. And he had known some of them earlier and he got to know many others later. And he was an, a very helpful source of uh, funding for many of their projects, and they were very useful um, sources of knowledge for him. And they, um, despite his his many protestations of you know academics as dry pedants as uh, the last people in the world he would ever want to sit down and talk to, um, in reality, um, you know many of his best friends were linguists. He formed. Long-standing relationships with, um, extraordinarily fascinating linguists. And it's very clear that those were, uh, very productive, um, relationships that he, um, that he cherished. And, um, meant with, in terms of many of them, he, they were lifelong friendships. And, um, and he continued to, to sort of have conversations with them. And part B, I guess, of that, of the response to his work on the American language is, um, is the public version of it, which is he became known as uh, as a philologist, which I think probably shocked him initially. Um, he became thought of as an expert in language and uh, got referred to very frequently. His book sold much better Clue than he thought it ever would, uh, and although we can never quite know what he thought initially it seemed to take off a momentum of itself. And as his work gained visibility, his work on language gained visibility, uh, I, I, it seems as though he just kept getting asked to kind of revise it. What's also really very present in his editions is his very exhausted awareness of the Sisyphusian project of trying to uh, write about language in, and provide answers about language when language is, of course, the most uh, dynamic thing. Uh, culturally speaking in existence it's it's a it's a moving target it's never not changing and he uh, as far as I can tell um, felt compelled to keep trying to formulate arguments but each time one of those editions would come out um, you know the language would continue changing and so he would have to to revise and and add to it and um, and so that's my other my other sense is that um that he, he was caught up a little bit in, in the problem of his subject matter, which is trying to write something stable about something that's always changing is an impossible task, and I can unfortunately relate to that.
1: Sure. Um, and of course all this happens against the backdrop where, as you say, the language question is becoming uh, a matter of great import for politicians as well as for writers, and uh, is becoming something of a proxy for issues of assimilation in general. Uh, I guess this in some sense, uh, projects him into the into the front rank of public figures.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, and and um, that's one of the hard and and exciting things about for me about this project is that there's this very thin line between the various kinds of uh, writings on language during the moment. Presidents are writing about language um, in the moment you know during these decades and, and speaking very forcefully um, about, about language in a variety of ways. Novelists are clearly um, incredibly compelled by and interested in, in the national politics of, of U.S. English and, and of other languages and the status of, of other languages, um, I've tried to make it a habit as a result of my research during these years to um, not refer to non-English languages in the U.S. as foreign languages because um, my sense is that they're not actually foreign at all. And that the idea that they are foreign is really, um, part of the politics of the, of the time. It's, it's, you know, the effort to label certain, um, speech patterns, even forms of English, accented forms, as foreign, as strange, as signs of alienness, as a kind of, um, indication of inadequate citizenship training, that kind of thing where there are many echoes of that. Uh, much later on, and um, and so Mencken really uh, gains a tremendous amount of prominence because he's a spokesperson um, for this topic. But in characteristic fashion, he doesn't do so in a, in a way that um, neatly matches uh, Theodore Roosevelt's or um, or any any other political uh, figure or any linguists or any novelists. He he really does have his own um, his own take on it, which is both. Memorable and, and still funny, still quite vivid today. Um, but, um, but also highly, at times highly unfortunate and, and, you know, and certainly problematic. So, um, I mean, Mencken is just one of those figures who's, um, I think incredibly valuable to revisit. Um, but certainly, uh, I think it's safe to say no one's model for, uh, for how to think precisely about language. Um, but more of a lightning rod, more of a, um, a kind of chosen and voluntary uh, centerpiece, and he clearly loved the attention and was very happy to continue cultivating it um, because it, it really did keep him in the conversation.
1: In chapter two, you then turn to the uh, emergence of linguistics as a discipline in the in the twenties, uh, when, as uh, Edward Sapir put it at the time, interest in language had been transcending strictly linguistic circles. Sounds like a slightly barbed remark in some sense. Do you feel that the uh, linguists were more troubled, perhaps, by the uh, need to engage in these kinds of debates.
0: I think that there were probably a couple of different um, vectors occurring at roughly the same time. those who are following Saussure and Boaz, those who were um, emerging as as really, in a lot of cases, the foundational figures of linguistics, I'm sure in many ways found the politicization of language during the time to be troublesome and incredibly and, and infinitely frustrating. Um, and I suspect in many ways, um, exactly as you have suggested, that Sapir and others um, thought of, I think, Bloomfield as well. Uh, thought of the um, the larger conversations um, about linguistics as um, in many cases highly unfortunate. Um, my sense also, though, is that there was a deep investment among linguists and among English professors, in English in this sense, in quite literally the broadest possible scenario, um, who saw this also as a moment of opportunity. And as um, numerous linguistics journals were being founded, as um, major linguistics projects um, were being uh, being discussed, formulated, and, and shaped, um, and then initiated. Um, I think there was also a sense that linguists had, that some linguists had. I mean, you know, there's no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't generalize across the board with, with, um, with how linguists overall felt. I think, I think, um, various linguists have very different perspectives on it. Um, I think some welcomed the public attention to, um, what was linguists expertise and I think some felt that it gave linguists um, a capacity to speak to the public. I think that um, the Columbia professor George Philip Crapp was one for example who published in the American Mercury on African American English and um, and Louise Pound and many others who saw um, this as an opportunity for linguists and for specifically the um, the empirical study of linguistics to offer a corrective to what were otherwise Inflated and hyperbolic, symbolic, um, investments in, you know, in language and that really, in many cases, um, kind of ignored, um, the everyday realities of, of speech forms and what linguists were studying, um, and went straight to political polemics. Um, so my sense is there were, there were cross currents taking place at, at roughly the same time, but they were, um, they were very productive because they led to um, they led to a tremendous amount of fruitful work it seems to me during those years.
1: My impression too is that in some sense the expert opinion is able to intrude more into the political debate into that sphere than would necessarily be the case nowadays. Uh, is that your impression?
0: It is. The devaluation of expertise is a subject that I've actually thought quite a bit about in the current moment as well as, as in that moment. Um, there are several parallels here. I mean, the first is that um, English departments um, really uh, were in a process of redefinition in the early 1920s, also following World War I. So in the same moment that that the the U.S. language, U.S. English and U.S. languages were were being reconstituted and, and linguistics as a study of language was being constituted. Um, English departments were incredibly embattled and were um, reconceptualizing what they taught. They were asking themselves, and this is the beginning of the teaching of American literature um, as such. It's also the beginning um, of the um, of the really uh, the valuation of of varied forms of U.S. speech Um, including Native American speech, which of course was a major, major um, source of research for for many of the linguists um, during this time period. And the cultural relativism that comes out of this period as, um, as a way of studying speech forms for their complexity rather than arguing for greatness or dominance or cultural prominence as a reason for studying um, different kinds of, of speech forms. Um, is, it's, it has has great consequences for English departments. All of this is true really today. I mean, these are the kinds of things we talk about in department meetings from time to time um, today. So partly it's about um, economic adjustments, large scale, you know, global and national financial and economic change produce problems and questions um, for humanities departments um, regularly um, there were there were a number of different shifts over the course of the 20th century uh, along these lines but the um, the point that you're making about the expertise of linguists to speak publicly um, with uh, an awareness of their uh, research being relevant to the public the larger public interest the public investment um is is kind of is kind of a fascinating one to me. Um, I really don't have an answer as to why <laughs> Other than to say that um, it seems to me that that in a lot of ways expertise as a whole is has really become um, much devalued I guess I would say um, and uh, And some of the reasons for that I think are um, are good ones. They make a lot of sense um, Expertise has also been you know been the cause at times for some unfortunate for um, some unfortunate results Um but in in the current moment when, you know, each presidential election brings a, new, a renewed call on English-only politics um, and this ahistoric uh, process occurs and recurs in which um, the conversations take place as though, you know, as though nobody remembers that they took place uh, four years prior and eight years prior and, you know, and long before then. And um, there are many professional linguists today who who speak very publicly in very prominent places, um extraordinarily persuasively. Um I take notes when I hear them on NPR and, and when I go go to their lectures because they're always telling me new things that I didn't realize. Um but there is a kind of um a way in which um I think what, what people believe about their language, um what passions are inspired by language, what people want to think about language, uh sometimes is very resistant to um to data and to to empirical, you know, empirical answers. Um, the kind of uh, passion of, of, of language politics um, is, is extremely hard to to divert and to, um, to reconsider. So when I teach my classes, that's often where I start is exactly the question that you're asking, which is um, if it's in fact the case that there is no national language, if it is in fact the case that we consider languages to be equal and, and all speech forms are languages. Uh, you know, why then, dot, dot, dot. And I just sort of pick up a, a current um, phase. And, um, and you know, we're sort of off and running.
1: Turning to the second portion of your book, uh, where you discuss writers in particular, uh, you structure the re- remaining chapters mainly around pairs of texts or writers. Was that a conscious decision or something that emerged when you considered the kinds of relations that you wanted to draw out?
0: It was a conscious decision. And I made two decisions fairly early on, actually. And um, one was that I wanted not for my chapters to be single author chapters or even single text chapters, but rather um, to find ways to have the chapters feel dialogic, to feel as though the novels that I was interested in uh, were in conversation with other works. Because for me, language issues illuminate a deep intertextuality, a a kind of deep resonance of um what what one set of novels um owes to prior generations of novels. They feel to me to be very, very well informed by literary history and very much engaged with uh novels that are being published at the same time and, and novels that came earlier. And I wanted to bring that out. I wanted that to be a part of my project because um it felt so so sort of strongly um present in the ways I was reading them. So I would read Gertrude Stein myself and I kind of, and I was fascinated by what she did. But it always felt relational, it always felt like it was happening in some relation to other authors' works, and the same thing is true with with many of the other um, authors I discuss and the second thing i wanted to do i decided fairly early on is um because l- language is not exactly a new topic it's not as though uh, i'm the first person who've ever thought about the idea of writing about language issues the uh history of your podcast is a perfect example of the fact that this is an extraordinarily important long standing um and and richly discussed topic and um so what i wanted to do is take a look at what um what works in, in many cases um prior scholars had not already uh, centrally understood to be um experimental language writing or multilingual writing or mixed language writing i wanted um at least some of my choices or as many choices as i could of novelists to be uh not the novelists that you might think of as uh representing a certain uh the historical experiences of a certain social group um so not the, necessarily the African American writer or not the Jewish writer or not the chicano writer um, who would who would most immediately come to mind um, so i I set myself historical parameters and then I tried to find um, novels that I felt were in were in some kind of anxious and competitive yet productive and complementary conversation with one another and that's when I started to sort of put them together and um, and so the pairs are intentionally, um, not pairs that you would normally find in most, in most literary critical books. Um, you, you need language, it seems to me, or, or the questions of, of multilingual, um, experimentation in order to bring some of these, some of these novelists together, or some of these writers, um, together. Otherwise, um, they would, they would seem to have less in common. And for me, that felt, that felt exciting. Um, and like, a like a productive challenge, because then uh, people who who are looking at the chapters wouldn't think, oh, of course, I already know without reading it what the relationship will be between these two authors. Um, I wanted people to be curious about what the relationships might be.
1: So in chapter three, you first discuss Gertrude Stein uh, critically alongside John Dos Passos under the heading of foreignizing English. Uh, And your point, or one of your major points, is that The way the writers explore language in their work is founded in some sense on their multilingual backgrounds and the sense to which English is not necessarily native or not obviously native to them
0: yeah it this was this was revelatory to me because i I hadn't even realized this connection until after I would started uh writing about the two of them. I was interested in the idea of, of linguistic cosmopolitanism of linguistic internationalism. I wanted initially for this chapter to be uh about writers who wrote expansively and um with great length um about uh or in languages. That um, had something um, kind of essentially transnational or trans uh, American in the hemispheric sense or or kind of transnational in the sense that Randolph Bourne uh, famously argued um, in order to reckon with what that um, emerging um, ambitious and um, and in many cases quite, you know, quite unprecedented uh internationalism that that US um that US power emerges as um you know with with real force at the beginning of the 20th century. And so for me Stein and Despotsis were interesting figures because uh they strike as both being politically um highly problematic. I mean both of them are easily assailed politically. Um and I, I'm less interested in in them as um for their for their politics per se but how their language experimentation uh relates to their sense of of global um or transnational um, identities. and so uh, what I was curious about was in what ways do their um, do their very well-known, very prominent uh, writings in you know in this kind of central moment of of literary modernism engage the ideas of of the relationship between uh, speech forms and identity. And what I what I discovered, what my readings are, um, that in both cases, they really are attempting to uh, to kind of undermine the relationship between um, how one speaks and who one is. And so with Stein, it's this, um, you know, famously uh, unreadable and and um, unknowable speech form that um, fantastic. Uh, interestingly enough, when she reads herself in the recordings that we have of her, uh, she reads her, her work flawlessly. She reads it uh, as though you know she were reading um, Henry James or or anybody else from you know from the time period. Um, when I read her writing, no matter how many times I've read it, I find myself you know tripping on my toes linguistically all the time. I find it incredibly hard to read, um, and incredibly um, uh, defamiliarizing. And um, and so for me, it's about Stein's inhabitation of her own clearly very, very complicated relationship to English. English was not her first language. Um, she lived her early childhood in Europe, as did Dos Passos. And this is this is what you are um, specifically asking about. Um, and in both cases, they they were um, clearly very anxious about their their speech forms. When Stein initially tried to get published, she was accused of not knowing the language and um, was was repeatedly for decades afterwards and probably still is today. Uh. Know, lampooned for what would seem like um ineffective and and um and very you know poor speech, bad English. And um Desposos, when when he was very young, um, through a very uh tortured and anguished um childhood relationship to his biological father, uh, was mocked for the way that he spoke when he was very young and, and came to came to the US from Europe um and went to boarding school. And um clearly retained in both cases, both authors, um, a sense of elitism and privilege. And yet at the same time, this um, relationship to minoritarian speech forms that kind of undermines linguistic prestige. And so it's that ambivalence that, that really interested me in each of them. And it felt to me as though there was something something in common with, with this process. It's his attempt to be, I think, virtuistic in uh, bringing together multiple genres of writing, um, newspaper writing, uh, uh, sorry, newsreels and uh, film and montage and French and Italian and um, you know many different kinds of languages. And so there's a kind of reverse direction in some ways in the two in the two works. Um, Stein's The Making of Americans takes English and uh, has the effect, it seems to me, uh, that that I sometimes um, am reminded of. If you know, if you stare at any word long enough, it starts to look strange, uh, no matter how simple it is. Is. If you stare at the word the for long enough, you start to think, is the really spelled that way? And um, I, read, I read her language strategy, her language practice as estranging um, as English to, to readers. Um, and as generating the kind of relationship to language that, that immigrants and, and those for whom English is not a first language or a native language, um, have. And for Despostos, it's kind of the reverse. It's English, um, inhabited by, uh, the languages of the world. It's, it's a kind of, um, social practice of language in which, um, the U.S.'s internationalism um, inherently requires English to also um, be inhabited by the languages of the world and um, my sense is is that if you know had does process been able to um, to uh, write USA um, in a you know in, in a vastly greater number of languages if had he known a vast number of languages um, I suspect he would have.
1: That uh, relationship between speech forms or styles and identity that you uh, you said is being played with, there's I suppose inherent in um, Stein's work in particular in, in the sense that superficially it looks very simple, but actually what's going on is much more complex. Yeah,
0: it's it, it's the kind of thing that frankly each time I read her her work, each time I come back to it, um, and I've I've read it and come back to it more times than I'm willing to admit each time it, it really does um, feel to me uh, differently dangerous and unstable um, and have different registers of, of what, um, you know, what sometimes feel sort of ecstatic and euphoric and sometimes feel deeply depressed and deeply alone and, and isolated. Um, and it's, it's quite remarkable what, you know, what registers she's able to produce. Um, it's the simplicity, the seeming simplicity of it, um, that is really seems very clear to me was, was her project. I mean, um, in the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas Stein, um, says, um, of herself throughout Alice B. Toklas's voice, uh, that she, um, she felt as though, um, the, her, her writing couldn't be done through the use of invented words or non-English words. Um, she had to take on the the basic parts of English itself and her writing throughout her career. Um, really, really demonstrates that that's, that that's what she was up to. And so, um, you know, I think different readers of different generations have found and, and will in the future find different ways to um, identify its its symbolic import um, uh, I think it's Stein's work is the kind of work that that really does speak to different uh, readers in in very different kinds of ways it's a it's a very pluralist simplicity it's a simplicity that hides all kinds of of um, additional meanings through its awkwardness and through its its you know its unexpected um, locutions. Um, the only only other thing I would say about its simplicity that is always very interesting to me is that um, she also seems to be studiously avoiding pattern um, there's this way in which I know when I first started reading Stein, I kept thinking there was it was a code to crack. I kept thinking there must be an um, there must be uh, an anagram in there somewhere or an acrostic or something. I mean there must be something else happening here there's it can't just be what it says um, it must be. Um, there must be a you know um, a way of of multiplying numbers and adding letters and doing something else that would make it make meaning. Um, and and what what emerged for me is actually that it really is very much about about what she said, plain speech, the speech of ordinary Americans who um, over the course of time have been um, ignored because it sounds so um, too simple, too basic, too everyday.
1: Moving on to chapter four, the uh, the theme of the unstable relationship between linguistic form and social identity is uh, very much at the forefront in the, the chapters Vernacularizing Silence, where you discuss uh, "Cane" by Jean Toomer and uh, uh, the work of Nella Larson, notably Passing, in which that's a very central theme in a sort of semi autobiographical sense.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, material violence is not divorced from language politics at any point. There are uh, ways in each of the chapters, um, all of the chapters, even including the introduction, in which um, I, I really want to make clear that um, the discussion of, of language politics is not verified one that is distant from the din of, of violence that is taking place in the nation and, and across the world, Um but is in some relationship to it, and um, that, that literary modernism is has this very um, similarly amb- ambivalent relationship to, to various forms of, of historical violence and contemporary violence, violence that's taking place at its moment. And that's that's my one of my ways of reading Gene um, Toomer and Nella Larson. Um, there are um, un- unstated and unspoken and very subtle forms um, of of both cultural violence. And, and material violence that are taking place in these works. And the relationship to um to the kind of power of language um to uh to kind of rationalize um inequality is um is again true in, in, in I hope all the chapters, but is um is certainly very much on the forefront of of this one. Um in some ways Larson's I think a paradigmatic writer for the whole book because um the concept of passing Um, I argue requires um, a linguistic act. It requires uh, a linguistic performance and it it requires um, a very careful attention to speech and people who have literary critics who've read Larson in the past, um, have tended to focus on other elements of her text, um, have focused very often on, um, physical features on um, structural features on sexuality, um, on gender and on, um, Whole range of, of immensely important um, features of the text. Um, what, what really struck me with force is how much um, in pivotal plot moments of the text, uh, moments of writing of, of written words are very important, and the ways that they're written are, are sort of key to to um, either setting up the story or to resolving it. Um, and the other thing is, is that speech is everywhere through and through it. It is a, um, it is a work that is is, is constantly Um, Playing with what people think speech means and the relationship between um, speech forms and identity uh, is is most obviously disassociated in this text, because if speech determined identity or if speech were a marker of identity, then passing with racial passing or or cross racial passing couldn't occur. And in, in fact. Of course, we know it has occurred historically um, and, and likely continues to occur and will continue to occur in various permutations. And so um, the, the performance of passing requires an awareness and a sensitivity and a sophistication um, with with speech and with language. And that was that was one of the elements that came out of it. Um, what, what was in some ways a secondary, uh, a secondary interest to me, um, was Larson's own, um, immigrant past. The fact that her parents were immigrants, the fact that, um, she, uh, translated as, as part of her first publications, the fact that, um, that English was, was a language, but not her only language. She lived abroad, um, and, and she too had a cosmopolitan, um, outlook. Gertrude Stein was one of the people she most wanted to meet and, uh, and was trying very hard to get them to get them together um, when Larson was in Europe, um, and so there it, there turned out to be these really interesting um, comparative and contrastive um, strains in which the again simpli- seeming simplicity of Larson's um, narrative prose in this in the story passing. Uh, if you take it as simple, you've missed everything that's actually happening. And to a certain extent, Stein is the reverse, because you, you know, you sort of know that with Stein you're getting linguistic complexity, but at some level you don't quite realize, um, just how, how simple and straightforward the relationship between, um, between the, the strange forms of English, um, and, and what people thought of at the time as comprehensible English were. Um, and in, in Larson's career, the fact that she uh her last work of, of published prose was a piece that she published, Engaging Um African American Vernacular English, which um was uh was a linguistic form that she um clearly had a, a fairly anxious relationship to. Um and she was um called out for uh she was accused of plagiarism. Um, publicly, And she had to respond to the charge of, of plagiarism. And so um, I'm interested in authenticity, politics and race. Um, and uh, I'm fascinated by the irony that for Larson, somebody who is in my reading of her seeking to accomplish what what you know, what we today would call um de essentializing language, um showing the cracks and the crevices between um between language and and forms of identity. Um the fact that she was trying to do this in, in pretty much all of published work. Uh, um, and she is accused in the end of being an inauthentic writer is, is just kind of fascinating to me. Um, and it's when she um, explicitly engages um, African-American English for the first time, you know, vernacular English from the South directly um, that she is that this occurs. And so um uh, I kind of sidestep the, the did she plagiarize question or did she not mostly because it seems to me to be a less interesting question than the the fact that she's clearly writing in an intertextual vein. She's writing um, a translated form of a story that existed previously. That's her own her own interpretation says that she was um, that she was responding to an, a pre existing version of a story. Um, but writing it in her own her own linguistic forms, not again her essential forms, um but in forms that she was using as an author. Tumor is, is in some ways someone whose, uh, whose work I think, um, similarly the linguistic elements of it I think have have kind of been overlooked, even though in Tumor's case it's much more, um, prominent as is the violence that takes place in, in, in the text Cain. Um, it's, Cain is a, is a flamboyantly experimental work. It's an absolutely and, and unmistakably, um, experimental Work of modernism. It's highly celebrated initially um, upon its publication, um, in part for its its ability to um, to be drawing on folkloric and urban modernist forms at one and the same time, and to be um, to be channeling these cross currents, these multiple um, these multiple paths at the same time for literature. But what again with with tumor struck me in, as as not having been discussed. Um, as as much or in the context that I thought it really needed is um, the fact that he's he's not using um, a he's not defining or or representing um, vernacular speech, af- African-American vernacular English in a phonologically exact way. He's not trying to do what most um, so-called dialect authors or or most authors who are trying to uh, figure out how to capture alphabetically how text, how sound, how speech sounds. He's doing something else. It's something much more engaged with, um, with, with symbolism. And it is, um, it is, it changes over the course of different stories. So the final story, Kabnis, is a story that is linguistically unstable. Um, the, the central character, Ralph Kabnis, speaks, his speech is represented differently at different times throughout. Um, and so again, in, um, in tumors, version of it, which is one that that ranges from the south to the north and then back to the south again. Although its northernness is is primarily in Washington D.C., which um, many critics have pointed out isn't isn't you know isn't really the north in those um, in those sorts of ways. And in the 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 kind of um, cycles that the the stories take in its three part uh, structure, um, there there isn't a relationship of um, you know of of a swan song as he famously said to African American vernacular English um, there is uh, a new beginning it's it seems to me to be very futurist very forward looking um very much anticipating um future um African American modernist experimentations with language and in this respect i think it's why uh tumor remains a, a very powerful and somewhat um iconic figure for many later writers african american and not um, who are seeking to, uh, to try to get at the symbolic representation of, of language and speech, um, and, and the different histories of language and speech, um, and, and doing so not simply by, you know, by trying to come up with accuracy, with accurate, Phonological representations, um, but by taking a kind of oblique and indirect um, relationship to um, how to represent speech. So, what, what we get in in Cain, um, more specifically, are um, you know individual letters that represent words um, and and inconsistent relationships, inconsistent representations of speech.
1: For reasons of time, I'm not going to be able to discuss with you the last two chapters in, in as much detail, uh, which is a shame, but uh, briefly, um, Chapter 5 discusses and um, contrasts two diasporic Jewish writers, Henry Roth and Lionel Trilling. Uh, and in Chapter 6, you turn to the uh, Spanish influence emerging in uh, uh, Spanish language and indigenous language influence uh, in American literature through the work of Américo Paredes and Carlos Bulosan. My impression is there's a sort of, there's a contrast between uh, works which, which hark Back to a time of uh, sort of pre established multilingualism in the u s which is uh, fading away in certain di- dimensions and those which potentially could be seen as the vanguard of, of something uh, looking to the future and the kind of uh, the kind of language landscape that exists now which is becoming more uh, more pronounced in the future, do you feel that, that that kind of feeling influences the nature of these works?
0: That's terrifically helpful. I think that's really insightful and, and absolutely accurate. Um, there's um, there's a great deal of tension both in um, – all of these works lead double lives. They all are drawing on their own historical pasts, meaning that the authors in the moment, the historical moment that the authors were composing these texts, it seems to me they're thinking about the past. Each each of the texts has a complicated relationship to, to the historical eras that preceded um, their moment of, of production. As as literary texts, but then they also have really complicated reception histories, and um, and and many of the works that um, that I discuss here um, fell out of print, um, ceased to be read, um, and in the case of George Washington Gomez, weren't published until much later. Um, but there are um, these are works that have really seesawed in in the public imagination in terms of importance and in the, the um, estimation of literary critics over the decades. And that is interesting to me, too. I'm, I'm fascinated by why both critics and, and general readers would be um, investing value in, in, you know, in different books at different times. Um, so f- uh, to take an example of that. Um tumor's cane is is clearly thinking and and tumor says he's thinking about uh, what he anticipates is the disappearance of a folkloric african American um southern culture, one that's primarily rural that's being replaced by industrialization and um that's that's generally speaking moving you know moving northward. um Henry Roth's call It Sleep has a similar kind of anxiety about a disappearing and fading um, multilingual Jewish culture. And one that is, is, he, he knows is emerging as a, as an English dominant one and perhaps even an English only one. And so in that respect, um, the, the, um, the kind of language strategies of, of Tumor and, and, and Henry Roth, um, in called sleep, um, could, could actually be put in some interesting, um, conversation with one another. Um, for me, Roth is also, um, like Tumor, Interested very much in future experimentation and you know the rest of 20th and 21st century um, Literature really does show in fact that there's a tremendous amount of continuing experimentation with mixed language authors Many of whom um, look look to these authors for inspiration um, uh, Lionel Trilling who I pair with Roth is somebody who, um Similarly, is interested in history and similarly is interested in um, in thinking about cultural traditions and and national traditions and and legacies. Um, And he takes on, it seems to me, um, Matthew Arnold and his first in his first book for precisely that reason. Um, But but he, too, perhaps as much as or more than anyone else is forward looking. He is in the process of establishing and thinking about his own um, place in the U.S. Academy, trying to find uh, trying to get tenure, trying to find uh, or imagine a role for himself as um, as a as a writer, as a Jew, um, as somebody who had previously written for you know for magazines um, and for uh, venues that were primarily oriented toward Jews, and then comes to attempt to write uh, with Columbia being Columbia University being a very unstable place for him um, to to a very different kind of audience. Um, Américo Paredes and uh, Carlos Bulosan are are also. Um, figures who it seems to me are um are absolutely forward looking and anticipating um audiences for writings that are primarily in english but that are um that are 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 um, including um spanish and indigenous languages um within english and within you know within spanish um and so in this respect it seems to me I would say there is a kind of shift in, in many of the works that I discuss um, toward anticipating what kinds of readerships and cultures um, would emerge. Um, in the case of, of the various novels, their readerships um, sometimes would you know precipitously decline and they would have to be recovered much later.
1: Uh, well, time here is nearly up, so I, I must close by, close by asking, as far as your own work is concerned, are you inclined to follow some of these leads forward in time, or indeed back in time, or uh, are you focusing on exploring some more of the dynamics of the period you write about here? Somewhat uh,
0: tortured by not being able to think about language issues all the time, because um, it's it's really uh, the kind of thing that feels to me to be um, very very fruitful. Um, the project I initially thought I was writing before this one is, is in part the project I'm working on now, which uh, is actually about photography and visual cultures um, during the first half of the 20th century. So it's roughly the same time period. It's the latter of your part of your question. Roughly the same time time period, but but a different kind of language, a different kind of, of media um, instead of, of media. Um, but the other thing that I'm doing is writing a, a literary history of immigrant novels. And that does expand um, both before and after. And I'm also editing a volume, um, uh, 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 co-editing one volume and editing another volume on on um, that relate to language issues. Um, so I certainly um, hope to be involved in, in Language Matters for a long time to come.
1: Well, um, you've made abundantly clear there's so much to explore in all those directions, and I wish you every success with it. In the meantime, let me say, Josh Miller, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I've been talking to Joshua Miller about his book, Accented America, The Cultural Politics of Multilingual Modernism. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club!
0: Computer solitaire, huh? Ah,